Last time we spoke about the battling bastards of Bataan, and how they had to finally give up the Abukay Malbin defense line. Now the defenders in Bataan would have to hold up on the Orient Bagak line. Over in Malaya, the Battle of the Mar had come to a disastrous conclusion, and now the defenders there were forced to retreat to their Gibraltar of the East, the Fortress of Singapore. We then opened up the Burma campaign and got a small taste of how problems within the dysfunctional alliance of Britain, China, and America were having a terrible effect on establishing an organized defense of Burma. We also continued the Dutch East Indies campaign with the Japanese capture of Rabaul, Balakipapin, and Kaving. Today, we will continue all of these stories with an emphasis on the loss of a major Allied-held territory. This episode is the fall of Malaya. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can start, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much more, so go give them a look over on YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And if after all that you are still hungry for some history-related content, why don't you go over to my channel, the Pacific War Channel, over on YouTube, where you can check out a few episodes going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s until the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Give it a look, it'll mean a lot to me. On the night of January the 22nd, General Wainwright and General Parker both began a hazardous withdrawal from the Abukane and Malben defensive lines. Meanwhile, Douglas MacArthur was telling Washington everything was going according to his plan. Quote, Under the cover of darkness, I broke contact with the enemy. Without a loss of a man or an ounce of material, I am now firmly established on my main battle position. The execution of the movement would have done credit to the best troops in the world. End of quote. In truth, it was a complete disaster. The men were panicked. Tons of war equipment was abandoned. Something like 40% of the Philippine Army divisions had deserted. There was no more reserves available. Now untrained sailors, with their white uniforms blackened up by coffee beans, would be thrown into the battle. Marine non-commissioned officers would command these sailors and provide leadership. For some of these sailors, they lacked basic knowledge. One sailor was overheard saying, quote, Hey Sarge, how do you get the bullets into this thing? End of quote. After four days, a new defensive line was formed between the coastal towns of Orian and Bagak. By January the 26th, the Bagak Orian line had pillboxes trenches, and was being resupplied via footpaths through the jungle. Despite how battered the American and Filipino defenders were, the Japanese were also pretty worse for wear. General Nara's Summer Brigade was riddled with over 2,000 casualties alone. When the fighting resumed past the Abake line, the jungle was so thick in places that a thousand Japanese managed to slip past Wainwright's lines without being detected for over three days. It would take nearly three weeks of deadly hand-to-hand -hand combat to wipe them out. Now General Nara had sent out the 65th Brigade to advance on the east while General Kimura's force advanced along the west. But General Homa had an ace up his sleeve. He was going to make some amphibious landings to bypass the defensive lines. Homa was going to land some barges on the rugged west coast far behind the Bagak Orion line and get a force to march on the southern naval base of Merivels. This move would effectively cut off supplies from Corregidor, so five separate landings would be attempted over the next two weeks. One of them began on the evening of January the 22nd, 
with some landing crafts departing from Morong, heading towards Kaobobo Point, just south of Bagak. Now, Homa may have been jumping the gun a little bit. Lieutenant General Masami Maeda, Homa's chief of staff, warned that if MacArthur discovered any of these landings, he could very well break through. Maeda then advised that they should merely blockade Batan, while the rest of the archipelago was occupied, stating, quote, By that time, the men of General MacArthur will be starved and ready to surrender. End of quote. Maeda had a compelling point, but Homa thought it unthinkable not to press for a quicker victory. To Homa, Tokyo would not permit such a face-losing strategy. Yet to perform the operations he wanted to, Homa was forced to swallow his pride and once again ask for heavy reinforcements. A telegram came from Tokyo, and Homa's staff left the room as he received it, apparently with tears beginning in his eyes. Tojo was displeased. There had been victories in all parts of the war, except in the Philippines. Homa passed out upon reading this and was carried into the next room. Back in Corregidor, President Quezon listened in fury to Roosevelt on the radio, stating that thousands of aircrafts would soon be on their way to the battlefield. That battlefield being Europe. He said this, quote, For 30 years, I have worked and hoped for my people. Now they burn and die for a flag that could not protect them. Por Dios y a todos los santos. I cannot stand this constant reference to England, to Europe. Where are the plains this sinvergüenza scoundrel is boasting of? How American to writhe in anguish at the fate of a distant cousin while a daughter is being raped in the back room. End of quote. President Quezon then summoned his cabinet and said he would request from Roosevelt to make the Philippines independent so that he could claim neutrality and thus both America and Japan would leave his people alone. He felt America had betrayed him and he pressed MacArthur to submit his wishes straight to Washington. MacArthur actually went through with this, risking his own military career in doing so. Roosevelt stated unequivocally, quote, We can't do this at all. Then Roosevelt, in a rather masterful fashion, wrote a letter to President Quezon, and it read as such. So long has the flag of the United States flown over the Philippine soil. It will be defended by our own men to the death. Whatever happens to present American garrison there, we shall not relax our efforts until the forces which are now marshalling outside the Philippines return to the Philippines and drive out the last remnant of the invaders from your soil. President Quezon was apparently overwhelmed by these words, as he said, quote, Swore to himself and God that as long as he lived, he would stand by America, regardless of the consequences to his people or to himself. End of quote. This all comes courtesy of The Rising Sun by John Toland. Roosevelt followed this up with a message for MacArthur, and it read like this. The duty and the necessity of resisting Japanese aggression to the last transcends in importance any other obligation now facing us in the Philippines. I particularly request that you proceed rapidly to the organization of your forces and your defenses so as to make your resistance as effective as circumstances will permit and as prolonged as humanly possible. End of quote. Thus, the Philippines had officially become a lost cause, and MacArthur was now a symbol of the resistance. 
MacArthur made a reply, and it is as follows. I have not the slightest intention in the world of surrendering or capitulating the Filipino element of my command. There has never been the slightest wavering among the troops. End of quote. In typical fashion, with much exaggeration, however, the defenders riddled with dysentery and malaria, starving on half rations with uniforms in tatters, well, they were holding the line. Unfortunately, the Japanese who set out for the amphibious assaults ran into some really rough sea, and they misidentified their landing points. Some ended up ashore at Kuanan Point, others at Lango-Saskawan Point, much further south than intended. This left them isolated, but also very close to Marivels, and thus the Battle of the Points had begun. On the morning of January the 23rd, 300 Japanese soldiers had landed and were moving towards Longoskawan Point. A combination of the coffee-stained sailors and their marine commanders, alongside some soldiers, were sent through the thick jungles to dislodge the Japanese invaders. Despite their best efforts, the Japanese held their beachhead sternly, even after some intense artillery and motor was rained down upon them. MacArthur was forced to allocate some better trained forces to join in and take them out. Now while the defenders were desperately trying to eject the Japanese from the Longoskawan Point, 600 Japanese managed to land and infiltrate the Kuanan Point just 7 miles north. Quickly a stalemate occurred between the Japanese and a mishmash of 550 defenders, drawn from pursuit squadrons, interceptor command, and Filipino constabulary forces. Thus, it was not surprising, therefore, that there was little progress being made at dislodging the infiltrators. By the night of January the 26th, Kimura sent his reserve battalion from Olongapo to help him out. But yet again, rough seas and perhaps bad weather sent the landing crafts astray, and the reinforcements found themselves due north of Kuanan Point at a place called and Yasan Point. While the Battle of the Points raged, Homa decided to appoint Lieutenant General Marioka Sasumu to take an offensive against Wainwright's western area. He gave him two battalions and an engineer's regiment. Marioka's men began to make night attacks all along the Orion Bagak line. When I say night attacks, by the way, I am talking about some pretty terrifying stuff. Imagine being holed up in a foxhole in the middle of the night when you suddenly hear some rustling in some bushes. What do you do? Do you call out, hey, who's there? And perhaps you might even get an English reply, but it also might be a Japanese soldier with a bayonet fixed about to jump into your foxhole with you. Many friendly fire incidents would occur throughout this war, and times such as these were riddled with them. After three days of playing around at night, a few incursions were successful. A breach in the defense line was made in two places, but luckily the defenders were able to bog them down and cause further stalemates. On January the 29th, the Philippine scouts with some tanks broke the Japanese and dislodged them at Logoskawan Point. Though two other points were in Japanese hands, Marivelles could now breathe a bit easier. Yet we're now going to have to take our leave of Bataan and dive back into Borneo. Now if we go a bit back in the Borneo campaign, you will remember the Japanese had consolidated their gains on the British-held part of Borneo by taking Kuching. After that, the remnants of the Punjab 15th Regiment retreated to Sinkawang 2nd Airfield, which held a garrison of 750 Dutch troops. Colonel Lane then placed his forces under the Dutch command to defend the airfield. In the meantime, after being delayed nearly a week by really bad weather, the Kawaguchi Detachment prepared their advances coming from the north by land and making amphibious landings at Pemangak along the west coast. 
The attack would come on January the 24th as five Japanese companies crossed the border to advance on Single Wang. They reached the small village of Tebas, just 2.5 miles northwest of the airfield. Upon learning of the incoming assault, the Dutch forces hurried to destroy the supplies and barracks at Singawang Airfield No. 2 so they could evacuate. To give them more time, Colonel Lane decided to try and launch a counterattack. The attack failed, and by the night of January the 26th, the Japanese were now assaulting the flanks of the defenders. While the front lines tried desperately to hold on, the Dutch and Punjab defenders began the evacuation of Singawang Airfield No. 2 on January the 27th. To cover their retreat, they had a Vickers Carden Lloyd light tank and a Brat Overwagen, which managed to inflict some heavy casualties upon the Japanese companies. The defenders retreated to the towns of Lido and Senga, southeast of Sangawang Airfield No. 2. The Overlagen managed to get to Lido, with pierced tires, mind you, but the tank had to be abandoned to the Japanese. During the chaotic retreat, two Punjab platoons were encircled and completely annihilated. By the night of January the 27th, the defenders had established some defensive positions at Lido, but at the same time, the Japanese force that had landed at Pabakak was about to capture several coastal towns to the south and were now edging closer to Bengajang, dangerously close to Lido. The defenders were in danger of being surrounded by the two Japanese forces now. This forced the Lido defenders to abandon it and go further east to Sangha and Singtang. Eventually, their plight would result into guerrilla warfare along the south coast of Borneo. On the other side of Borneo, the Kume detachment began to cross the Dondang River by January the 29th, getting closer to Betats Petroleum Matsepang, the Batavian Petroleum Company in English, and this was located north and south of Saraminda, one of the most important drilling sites being at Sangasanga. Back on January the 24th, Colonel Van den Hugenband ordered Captain Monterio to destroy the oil fields. To give the oil field demolition team some more time, Monterio sent four small brigades to try and delay the Japanese advances. Monterio simultaneously evacuated the families of the oil field staff at Sangasanga and Angana to Saraminda Airfield No. 2, where they would further evacuate to Java. The four small brigades of men sent to delay the Kume detachment were torn to pieces and quickly returned towards Lao Jinan. Once the Japanese took Sangasanga, Monteiro now positioned his new HQ in Saraminda. He decided it would need to be demolished as well now. Thus, the raising of Saraminda was done, and by January the 31st, Monteiro's forces were all in Lao Zinan now. It was there that the battered four brigades were able to inform Montenero how the Kume detachment had beaten them so badly, and that it seemed they were heading to cross the Teram River from the south. Montiero then planned to execute a long-term delaying operation to try and stop Japanese advances towards Saraminda Airfield No. 2. Yet another important operation was about to begin in the Dutch East Indies, and it would take place on Ambon Island. Ambon Island was a political, economic, and military center of the Mulakas, Spice Islands, located halfway between Manadu and Timor. It held strategic value because of its airbase and could be theoretically a stepping stone to launch attacks upon Australia. It was also necessary to take Ambon Island to continue the eastern thrust towards Timor, where Japan's ultimate strategic aim was to block supplies from Darwin going to Java. General Ito Takeo was given the task of capturing Ambon and he would command the Eastern Detachment, consisting of three battalions, two of which came from the 38th Division. He would also have the support of the Naval Eastern Attack Unit, commanded by Rear Admiral Takagi Takio, which had two cruisers and 14 destroyers. Back on January the 24th and the 25th, aircraft of the Japanese aircraft carrier Hiryu and Soryu attacked the airfield on Ambon, that the Japanese intelligence had flagged as a major airbase. The truth, however, 
was that the Australian squadron of Hudson bombers had been relocated out of Ambon after the capture of Menado. On Ambon, there only remained two Brewster Buffaloes to be its entire air defense. Lieutenant Broros and Sergeant Blands flew the two lone Brewster Buffaloes to attack ten incoming Zero fighters. Lieutenant Broros's Buffalo was hit, caught fire, but he managed to parachute into the sea safely. Bland's buffalo was shot down, and he also parachuted, landing in some trees on Ambon. He had over 17 different wounds from this. Flight Lieutenant Cornfoot of the RAAF, 13th Squadron, recalled, The Valiant pilots had taken off against the Japanese after sitting for hours beside the strip. The loss of the Dutch pilots saddened us indeed. We had profoundly admired their heroism, even though it was futile. End of quote. On the ground of Ambon, there was 2,600 troops from the Malacan Brigade, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Kapitz, and 1,200 Australians, known as the Gull Force, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel William Scott. The Japanese planned to land on the east coast of the southern peninsula of Ambon, where the defenses were considered weakest. Simultaneously, Takagi was going to land some marines to capture the Laha airfield. On January the 31st, the eastern detachment landed on the shores of Ambon. Around 1,000 marines at Hitulama on the north coast, and others landed at Latimore Peninsula on the south coast. Despite being around the same amount of forces as the defenders, the Japanese held overwhelming air superiority alongside artillery and tanks. The Japanese quickly overran the Dutch defenders on the coast, forcing them to pull back towards the town of Paso and Batugang. Unfortunately, the Dutch in their haste were unable to destroy bridges, such as the ones at the Hitu River, which could have helped further delay the Japanese. Batugang would fall on January the 31st, and with it the Japanese were able to encircle the Dutch who were now in the town of Paso. The Dutch, unlike the Australians, suffered from a lack of vital equipment as a result of Nazi Germany taking their homeland. They particularly were hampered by not having radios and had to rely on landlines for communication. At noon of January the 31st, Joseph Capitz had moved his HQ to Lantiri, but the telephone lines were cut, and now he was unable to get word from the Australians. This was made only worse because 400 Australians at Laha were under attack from Japanese Marines, and they could not ask for the Dutch for help. By the morning of February the 1st, the Japanese would capture Paso, and as an eyewitness recalled, At 6 p.m., a motorcycle with sidecar was seen on the road to the west of Paso, position showing white flags and traveling towards the Japanese. Firing on the Paso perimeter was suspended on the orders of the Dutch company commanders, and the troops were allowed to rest and eat. End of quote. Despite this, it's actually unclear who authorized the surrender. There was no initial response from the Japanese, and Joseph Capitz ordered the Dutch to recommence fighting. Yet, when commanders went to the troops, they found that many had already been taken prisoner, and thus surrender was inevitable. Over 800 Dutch soldiers would surrender at Halong, and Joseph Capitz was able to send word to Lieutenant Colonel Scott, urging him to do the same but that message would take over two days to be received. Thus, the Australians would fight on, and we will speak about their heroic stand in the next episode. But for now, we need to venture back to Malaya. The battle for Mar marked an end to any serious attempts at holding on to the area of Johor. After this, there was really no more real lines of defense to hold on to the area. Percival's last chance of making a stand in Johor would be to hold the southernmost lateral roads across the peninsula, which ran from the port of Batu Pahat, which is around seven miles inland, to Mersing on the east coast. 
Yet within the space of only a few days, Yamashita had made a three-pronged attack, striking on both coast as well as down the trunk road and railway that acted like a spine of the nervous system that made up the central front of Johor. On the east coast, Yamashita used his naval and air superiority to make major landings on the area that Bennett's forces had been stationed, waiting ever so long for a battle. The port of Endao, from which iron ore from Japanese-owned mines used to be sent to Tokyo, had now been abandoned by the defenders, who pulled back to the Mersing batu pahat defensive line. On January the 26th, a Hudson patrol spotted two Japanese transports being escorted by a small fleet convoy in the direction of Endao. Despite the horrible odds against them, the last offensive of Air Vice Marshal Conway Pulford squadrons would make an aerial charge using some lumbering and slow Vildebeest biplane torpedo bombers, albacores, Hudsons, Brewster Buffaloes, and some Hawker Hurricanes. They were ordered to make a massed daylight attack on the small fleet convoy. By the time they would reach the small fleet convoy, unbeknownst to them, the landing crafts had already transferred the troops. 21 Vildebeest and Albacores, 9 Hudsons, 15 Brewster Buffaloes, and 8 Hawker Hurricanes would attack in two waves. They were also supported by two destroyers, the HMS Thanet and HMAS Vampire. Now, some of you might be thinking, oh wow, Hawker Hurricanes. Now we got some real air power for the Allies. Yet, these Hurricanes, unlike the latest Spitfires, were not that superior. They were a type partly intended for a ground support role in the Middle East, and thus they came with sand air intake filters and 12 machine guns instead of the normal 8. Below 20,000 feet, these guys had a lot of weight, making them less maneuverable and slower than the Zero Fighter. On top of all of this, the pilots lacked combat experience, one of which was a future Australian Prime Minister, John Gorton, who would survive a crash landing which smashed his face into his own gun sight. In the batch of 24 pilots, 5 were Australian, 1 a Texan, and 4 Canadians, which surprised me to hear. They would be facing the light cruiser Sendai alongside 6 destroyers, 5 minesweepers, and transport ships. Oh, and 32 fighters. Leading the first wave was Tim Rowland, and his Vildebeests were outfitted with 250 to 500 pound bombs instead of torpedoes because of the waters around Endau being deemed a little bit too shallow for torpedoes. The first wave consisted of 12 Vildebeests, 9 Hudsons, 12 Buffaloes, and 9 Hurricanes. The first wave broke through the clouds at around 2,000 feet staggering towards the small fleet convoy, hampered by heavy bomb loads, weighing them down quite heavily. They were quite slow, and anti-aircraft gunners rained hell upon them when they came in. Roland's aircraft was the very first to explode in mid-air before he even started his bomb run. Then, Zero fighters from Catan burst into the scene. RAF Flight Lieutenant Tom Lamb began to dive towards the beaches littered with Japanese troops, and he recalled, It's a wonder the old crate didn't fall apart. Within seconds, the sky was thick with aircraft. It was disconcerting to see rows of holes appearing all over the place in the fabric and to hear the twang of parting wires. I could hear Sharp, that being his Australian gunner, blazing away, and I heard him shout that he had got a zero. At one time, I could see five parachutes in the sky and two aircraft going down in flames. I dropped my bombs at little more than three top height, doing some vicious skids whenever attacked. Suddenly, Gil Sharp gave a shout. A shell had got him right through the knee and the lower half of his leg was hanging off. Wills, my sergeant observer, took over the gun. The Japs continued to attack for a considerable distance, but finally, they gave me up as a bad job. 
End of quote. The first wave did not only have the IGN warship's anti-aircraft fire to worry about, 19 Nates and a single Nakajima Ki-44, deemed Tojo, were providing air cover. The first wave lost five Wildebeests, but they managed to bomb two transports, took out one Nate, and strafed some Japanese on the beaches. The second wave, consisting of nine Wildebeests, three Albacores, four Buffaloes, and seven Hurricanes, would come to the scene, but unfortunately for them, their escorts lagged pretty far behind and showed up late. The bombers of the second wave were met by ten Nates and two Tojos before their escorts could even get to them to support. They would lose five Wildebeests, two Albacores, and one Hurricane. Over 38 aircrew went missing. 27 would turn out to be dead, including both wave squadron leaders. For the pilots who did return, they were congratulated by Air Vice Marshal Paul Maltby, who promised them that there would never again be any daylight attacks. There was a third and fourth wave of unescorted Hudsons and Blemheins, but their actions really didn't amount to much. Despite the odds against them later on, during the night the Thanet and Vampire tried to stage a hit-and-run night attack using torpedoes against the small fleet convoy. Few if any of their torpedoes hit anything. Both destroyers then opened fire with their guns, and searchlights began to pour all over them. Thanet took a hit to her engine room, and her crew quickly began to abandon the ship. Vampire tried to shield them using a smokescreen, but it would have been a suicide run to try and rescue the crew of Thanet, and thus Vampire quickly fled back to Singapore. Fifty of Thanet's crew, including her captain, Lieutenant Commander Davis, struggled to get ashore and would make a grueling march back to Singapore on land. Thirty other sailors were plucked out of the sea by the IGN destroyer Shirayuki, and of these 30 sailors, one was Sub-Lieutenant Danger, Thanet's torpedo officer. The Shirayaki would land on Endau later on, and they handed over all the sailors, except for Danger, to the IGA. They would all be murdered. Danger was something of a prize, because he was the first Royal Navy officer to be captured by the IGN, and thus they took him to their base at Kamran Bay. Thus, Endau fell to the Japanese 18th Division, who stormed upon it. Those forces did not stop there, and began to march and bypassed Mersing, which Australians of the 18th Battalion were defending, but were then ordered to abandon as part of a general withdrawal to Singapore. They joined up with other troops trekking down from Kwantan, and both moved south along the jungle fringe towards the Johor Bahu. Abandoning Endau and Mersing without any real fight was a very depressing sight for the Australians, who had spent almost a year preparing the eastern defenses there. Then in the early morning, members of the 18th Battalion had made it to the Nithsdale Rubber Estate, just north of Gemalang, where they ambushed a Japanese vanguard. All the Australian forces had heard of what Black Jack Galligan's 30th had achieved at Gemas, and wanted to emulate it. Unlike at Gemas, there was no bridge to blow up here, but they would make do. They made a killing zone using Bren guns, 1625 pounders, and some motors, all opening up on cue. Come dawn, the Japanese vanguard found themselves with two companies of Australians ahead of them and two behind them, just as artillery began to bombard them. These unfortunate souls of Yamashita's 18th Division had been wading through swamps and jungle tracks, and not in the greatest of shape. Yet before the Australians could completely finish them and annihilate the vanguard, they received orders to disengage and pull back to Jemalang. By January the 27th, Percival was giving orders to all the commanders that he needed everyone on Singapore Island because the causeway would be blown up on February the 1st. Thus, East Force had a somewhat good time departing south, pretty much unmolested, but for West Force, it would not be so much fun. 
On January the 28th, the 26th Australian Battalion had been covering the rear guard of West Force, south of Singpang Rangam. The position was not ideal, as the extensive rubber plantations to the east of the trunk road offered the Japanese the chance to outflank the positions of the defenders. This was exactly what the Japanese did. After making a frontal assault against the Australian defensive lines during the morning, the Japanese would then attempt by midday an outflanking movement to cut the trunk road. Yet this was also what Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Blackjack Galligan was expecting. He retaliated by launching a strong and decisive counterattack using armored cars and inflicted heavy casualties on the Japanese, forcing them to retreat in disorder. Yet the Japanese managed to turn back the tides by using toxic smoke bombs on the Australians. In the end, it was still a huge success for the defenders, and they made their own withdrawal southwards hours after being gassed. On January the 29th, they managed to get just due north of the town of Ayur Benban, where they would have to fight yet again another Japanese force. Galligan in the 26th made a ferocious resistance at Ayur Benban against the Imperial Guards Division. They fought as they made their way further south towards the vicinity of Kulai and held there to inflict more losses upon the Japanese. By January the 30th, without giving up any more ground, they had been given word that they had bought enough time for the others to withdraw and began to make their own withdrawal. They would get safely to Singapore by January the 31st, just in the nick of time. Over in Batu Pahat was a garrison of the 15th Brigade. Many men were survivors of Slim River, alongside some of those poor souls of the 5th and 6th Norfolks and the 2nd Cambridgeshires, who were tossed literally to the front lines after three months at sea. They were holding the defense at Batu Pahat to allow other forces to withdraw to Singapore. Needless to say, the garrison did not have nearly enough men to fill the multiple choke points in the area. At the tip of the peninsula was the 11th Indian Division HQ. The Japanese during the Mar operation had inserted a battalion by boat in the area, which disappeared into the jungle and commenced guerrilla warfare on the British lines of communication. These units were reinforced by Nishimura's Imperial Guards Division when they began moving south after capturing the Mar. They moved quickly, using bicycles, and penetrated the British defenses quite deeply. They bypassed Batu Pahat and began to establish roadblocks to do to its garrison what they had previously done to Anderson's men between Bakthi and Peretsulong. The acting commander at Batu Pahat was Brigadier Bernard Chalan, who had recently taken over from Moorhead after the commander had died. Chalan was being pressed heavily by his rear for several days and been asking permission to pull back to Senganang, which was about 10 miles down the coast. Yet, Percival wanted to hold Batu Pahat's large airfield, which was only 60 miles away from Singapore, until the arrival of another two brigades of the 18th East Anglian Divisions were due any day now. Yet, as the days moved on, he had to give up the idea of holding it, and sent word to the acting commander, Challen, to leave. The message was too late, however, and Challen's 3,000 or so men were already retreating to Senganang when they came across a roadblock 500 yards beyond a bridge. His force began to probe the defenses of the roadblock when they realized another roadblock was being established behind them. Challen's force was being surrounded, and Challen was not aware of the exact date the causeway would be destroyed, and worried that by taking more time to fight it out, they would be abandoned on the Malayan mainland. The frontal blockade was covered by many machine guns, dug-in motors, logs, barbed wire, and other obstacles. To make matters worse for Challen, his wireless communications with the divisional HQ were down. He constantly sent messages, but to no avail. A relief effort was formed by the 11th Indian Division, who sent some men to distract the enemy's roadblock and nibble at them from the opposite direction. 
That force had two armored cars, and they pushed north five miles of Rengit when they hit the first roadblock. Almost immediately, they were fired upon from all sides, and another roadblock was established behind them. The vehicles and large guns were abandoned as they withdrew to the outpost at Rengit. They were not safe for very long, as soon Rengit became under siege from the roadblocking Japanese forces. A few of the 11th did manage to make it towards the roadblock that Chelan was facing, and this gave Chelan some hope that the roadblock could be pushed through. The small force also notified Chelan that the evacuation of Singapore was imminent, and that they really needed to hurry up. Thus, Chelan was in a similar position to what Anderson had to face at Padet Sulong, and had to make a very terrible decision. He would have to leave his wounded to the mercy of the incoming Japanese. Chelan had 3,000 men under his command, and even more if the detachments at Sengarang and Rengit were still en route. If his force left the coast roads and its bridges, there would be several rivers to cross. Chelan organized 1,200 of his men, some Cambridgeshires, Norfolk, and 300 Indians as a cavalry unit using some trucks and a few armored cars they had. They were to be the rear guard as the force made its way. Then, one night, as the force was trying to cross a river, everything fell into pure chaos. When, quote, A burst of machine gun fire and a salvo of motor bombs scattered the leading company. The panic spread. Many men were drowned in a swamp. End of quote. Challen tried to calm some of his men down. He went out to search for one of his colonels, but he got hopelessly lost. He tried to get to a road to find his bearings, accompanied by his Indian orderly. When they ran straight into some Japanese, who shot his orderly as Chalon dived to hide in some brush. He then crawled along the edge of a road and climbed over some barricades. Apparently, the Japanese defenders assumed he was one of them, and they did nothing. Once over the barricade, he stole a bicycle and rode off. At dawn on January the 29th, after being separated from his command for over 24 hours, he was caught by an Imperial Guard's patrol upon leaving a hut he was staying in. He gave kudos to the Japanese, who had just taken the most senior British prisoner to that very date. In his absence, Colonel Morrison took charge and tried to restore order in the panicked force. It seemed that the Japanese had cut them off, and they were not going to be able to make it as a formed body south. So he decided to take 1,500 men back to the east and tried to send word to Singapore to get the navy to pick them up after dark. A very tall order, considering there was not really much of a navy left. Morrison set up a defensive perimeter in the coastal hamlet some three miles south of Rengit, and only less than a mile from the coastal road, where a lot of Japanese motorized traffic had begun moving south. The navy responded by sending their Yangtze River gunboats, Scorpion and Dragonfly, towing a ton of little boats sampans and dinghies. As the troops were being taken through the mangroves, one could make comparisons with Dunkirk. The men were carried some half in the water at night, wondering if they had come this far only to be attacked by poisonous snakes or very large crocodiles. The force would make it to Singapore on February the 1st, after Indian sapers had used naval depth charges to blow a 70-foot wide gap in the causeway. At the Johor Bahu end, the withdrawal had gone amazingly smooth. The Japanese did not press hard on the rearguard, and the defenders had departed the Malayan Peninsula with some Argoyle pipers playing blue bonnets over the border. Now, Challen's command had been very lucky, but the price had been several hundred missing, and all of their artillery, and about 80% of their Bren guns, had to be abandoned. In the Central Front, however, things were going much worse. An entire Indian brigade had simply disappeared. Brigadier George Painter's 22nd Indian Brigade, which had been depleted since the fighting in Kwantan, numbering around 2,000 men, had been cut off and vanished trying to escape into the jungle. 
The reason for the cutoff was because the 9th Indian Division of Arthur Barstow's had decided to keep two of his brigades behind, Painter's 22nd and Lay's 8th, quite a bit forward inland. He did this to try and prevent the outflanking of other forces, such as the Eastern Australians, as they approached Singapore. Well, things went very, very wrong. There was a railway bridge between the 22nd and 8th Brigade that was blown up prematurely. Honestly, it was possibly by accident. Along that bridge was the telephone line that allowed the two brigades to communicate. Now, Painter had sent back most of his wheeled transport, Bren gun carriers, and most notably his HQ's wireless truck. Now, without a telephone line, Lay's 8th was unable to inform Painter's 22nd that he was moving closer to Singapore. Well, some Japanese of the 5th Division did not take long to exploit the gap that emerged between the two brigades. The Japanese inserted themselves between the two brigades, and now Painter's 22nd was cut off. When Barstow figured out what was going on, he exploded at Lay, stating, quote, You've sold the show. Hell take you. Man, get a battalion on that high ground. End of quote. Barstow then went to the railway line, determined to get Painter and alert him of the danger. He was accompanied by two Australian officers and a Sikh, as they boarded a push-pull, flatbed trolley. You know those comical ones you see in the old-timey films? Yeah, one of those. They came to where the bridge was blown up, and then they had to proceed by land, with Barstow in the lead wearing his distinct red band across the crown of his Major General's service cap. He was a gleaming prize for Japanese snipers, who shot him dead. After Admiral Phillips, Barstow was the second highest ranking officer on either side to be killed in the war up to this point. Meanwhile, some of Barstow's men still tried to contact Painter's 22nd, but they were no more successful than their dead general. Painter's 22nd were in danger of being completely surrounded, and thus, this is why they made their way back into the jungle. Now, it had been a long time since the 22nd received any rations or supplies. They also had quite a few wounded with them. They would not leave them behind. As noted by Captain Dennis Russell Roberts, as one of the stretcher bearers who crossed the jungle swamps during the night, he recalled, Shortly, all four men were floundering in the bog. The man on the off-four position, suddenly staggered. His knees were shaking wildly. He sank to one knee with a shout of terror in his hoarse voice, and the stretcher lurched over on its side. This was an awful moment, and it happened over and over again, in one form or another. I think it was the groans, and at a times the shrieks of the wounded which struck the deepest note of horror. On the other side of the crossing, the same difficulties were encountered. There, the wounded men would almost inevitably find themselves tilted backwards at the same steep angle, with their heads close to the level, on the mud, and their bodies uncomfortably positioned in a semi-vertical position. And through this hell, passed twelve stretchers, twelve wounded men, who were by now gangrious, delirious, and half-mad, 48 gallant men who carried the stretchers, a slow-moving picture of unforgettable misery. End of quote. As much as they tried, they would be forced to leave the wounded eventually. They ran into some Tamil rubber workers at a large estate and left them to their care. The rest of the brigade made their way south, they came across a small force of around 300 to 400 Japanese, but bypassed them, as all of the men were starving and had no strength left for combat. Just as they were setting up a rear guard, they were ambushed. One commander named Parkin saw a few of his Indian forces begin to put their hands up in surrender. Parkin brought up his Thompson, urging his men to fire at every Japanese they could see though most did not even have much ammunition left. 
there seemed to be a confusion in all of this. Many of the Indians thought Parkin wanted to surrender and were surprised when he chose to fight. Painter's personal battalion eventually ran into some more Japanese and they too would have to surrender. The day after the causeway had been blown up, Brigadier Parkins, who had inspired some of his men to fight on rather than surrender, arrived in Singapore, just 24 of them. They had managed to hijack a Chinese truck, drove to the northern side of the Straits from where they could see the naval base and flagged some sampans to rescue them. Over the next few days, some stragglers from Painter's 22nd Brigade also managed to reach Singapore with a grand total of 63 men doing so. Painter's 22nd Brigade was a disastrous loss, and all because of a single telephone line being cut. Many men did not make it to Singapore, but for those who did make it, they would only have momentary rest, for Yamashita was now going to siege the Gibraltar of the East, the fortress of Singapore. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. Hey, and if after all that you're still hungry for some history content, why don't you give my personal channel a look over at the Pacific War channel at YouTube. It would mean a lot to me. The Battle of the Points is still raging on in Bataan. The Malayan Peninsula has now fallen to Yamashita, and he will begin to siege the mighty fortress of Singapore. Ambon Island has been captured, and the Japanese are edging ever closer to their key target, that of Java. Yet to be able to capture Java, the Japanese would first need to take many airfields and major towns around it known as Java's Dahor. They were on the verge of taking these Dehor, such as Borneo, Celebs, and the Malacca's Islands. Abdukam watched this anxiously, knowing of the incoming peril to the cities of Makassar and Banjarmasin. They could not let the Malay barrier fall. Join us next time for the Battle of Makassar Strait. <laughs>